Today's episode will focus on a Ponzi scheme case with many twists and turns, involving a narcissist who will even pitch his investment idea to the prosecutors, fire his own defense attorney during the trial, and ask for a life sentence. A Ponzi scheme is when you take new investors' money to pay back previous investors. The mastermind behind this Ponzi scheme was a long-time investment advisor who owned a dry cleaning business and hoped to open up a doggy daycare, but ended up taking over $1.7 million from five victims. Hello and welcome to Real Life Regulators, a podcast aimed at educating investors using real cases. The podcast is brought to you by the North American Securities Administrators Association, also known as NASA. I'm your host, Nick Bondrew, and I'm the marketing specialist for the Alabama Securities Commission. Joining me today is Attorney Inspector Janice Hitzman and Forensic Accountant Leo Fernandez with the Ohio Division of Securities. We are here to talk about what happened what went wrong, and what you can do in the future to best protect yourself from securities fraud. Ms. Hitzman and Mr. Fernandez, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. Before we get into the case, let's start off and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Ms. Hitzman, we'll start with you. Good morning. Uh, I am the attorney inspector with the Ohio Division of Securities, and in Ohio, our enforcement section is a statutory section. We're called the Office of the Attorney Inspector. And, and I have to be an attorney to hold that position. But really what that means is that I manage the enforcement section within the Ohio Division of Securities, and I represent the division at all um, prosecutions and hearings for the division. So the Office of the Attorney Inspector would basically be the enforcement section of, of any other securities agency within other states. Well, thank you so much for your time that you're giving us today to take part of the podcast. And Mr. Fernandez, can you tell us a little bit about what you do for Ohio? Yes, good morning. My name is Leo Fernandez, and I'm a forensic accountant with the Ohio Division of Securities, which is a division inside the uh, Department of Commerce, which is located in the governor's office. Um, I'm an accountant, and I'm also a certified public accountant. And what I do for the division is I perform all the financial analysis related to the securities fraud cases that we handle in the enforcement division. Basically, uh, forensic accountants are known for following the money and uh, identifying sources and uses of funds. Well, again, thank you for taking some time out of your day to participate in the podcast. We really do appreciate it. So the subject of this case is uh, by a guy named Mr. Kim Hannon. Can we start with just a little bit and tell us a little bit about Mr. Kim Hannon's background? You know, um, how old was he? Was he married? His family? That sort of thing. Sure. Um, Mr. Hannon was in his late 60s and he was uh, by trade an investment advisor. He was licensed at the time of the transactions that formed the basis of the indictment and the eventual conviction. He had been in the business for um, um, a long time. Most of his life, he worked at firms such as LPL and Ameriprise. And um, at the time of the um, transactions in the case, he was actually employed as an investment advisor representative, registered with a investment advisor firm in Cincinnati called Hoarder Investment Management. 
did have children. He had a, he had recently um, lost a son to suicide and he was going, he had uh, divorced his wife. He had lost quite a bit of weight around this time. And uh, he had a girlfriend um, that he was seeing. So pretty much his professional career was being an investment advisor. Correct. So would you say like his day job, he was an investment advisor? He was an investment advisor. I think at, at the point of just prior to all of the his criminal activity, sold his investment advisor business to someone else. Okay. And he was looking to get into other types of businesses like the dry cleaning and the doggy daycare. So his and investment advisor business was kind of um, uh, going down. And then he was trying to branch out into these businesses that he really had no experience in running. And what uh, time frame was this? What years did this take place? The time frame was between 2014 and 2017. Okay, so it's a pretty recent, recent case. How did he go from being an investment advisor to looking to open up this dry cleaning business? Was it something that he was doing at the tail end of the investment advising or was he doing it at the same time? He was, he had both businesses open at the same time. So he was running his investment advisor business and that is how he was linking up with the investors that he was soliciting for these side businesses. Then he became aware of these side businesses and purchased assets in some cases. And then he solicited his investment advisory clients to invest in these side businesses. Now, how many dry cleaning business shops did he have at the time? Was it just one shop or was there multiple throughout town? So there were actually two dry cleaning businesses that uh, he was operating. One of them shut down um, pretty early on and and he was mainly running one, but there were actually two that he uh, had originally uh, managed or run. I know that you mentioned that he was he had just recently went through a divorce and had some family trauma. Where was he actually living? So he actually had a condo in downtown Canton, and it was called it was in the Onesta building. And that may not mean much for for those listeners out there, but it's a pretty swanky condominium unit in in downtown uh, Canton, very close to his investment advisory business. Okay, and how old was Mr. Hannon? Mr. Hannon was in his late 60s. He was 65 at the time that um, the case was for indictment. So that just, I think that gives us kind of a, a good picture of who Mr. Hannon was. He was a successful investment advisor in his early 60s or in his 60s. Recently went through a divorce. He tragically lost one of his children. And now he's venturing in to transitioning into another type of business. He's looking, I'm guessing, to walk away from being an investment advisor to being an entrepreneur with the dry cleaning business and some other side businesses. Is that correct? Okay. That's correct. So let's get into the business. What kind of business was this? So we already know that he had two dry cleaning businesses. He had already recently closed one down and he was operating one. From going through this, it appears that a doggy daycare reared its head. And um, tell me a little bit about this doggy daycare business that he was proposing to have. So he wasn't a, a great businessman, I will tell you that. So the so the dry cleaning business, he admitted during an interview with us under oath that the, the dry cleaning business was never profitable. 
it was generating some revenue, but the expenses exceeded any revenue that was received. So his MO was really that um, he wasn't a great businessman. He had these grand ideas. He got these investors to invest. And when the dry cleaning business uh, wasn't profitable, then his idea was let's um, make the dry cleaning location into a doggy daycare. And at the time that we conducted a search warrant, we actually interviewed him in the dry cleaning business. He showed us, he, he, he tried to sell us on it. He showed us the layout of this doggy daycare and was trying to sell us on the idea uh, of how great it was. Well, actually trying to sell it to you guys. Oh yes. And in wow. fact, yeah. In fact, he, 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 at, during the course of the prosecution, after the case was indicted, he actually sent a business plan to Leo and I via email talking about how he has a way to resolve all of these issues. If we would only invest in his new business, which was a business related to rolling file cabinets. And he just needed a little bit of money. He needed a place to work and he needed us to drop the criminal charges. Well, that's, that's what I call seeing it to the end, seeing it through. So, wow, that, that takes some, some guts to do that, to say the least. So like with this doggy daycare, I know that there's a process that you have to go through. If you're going to close a dry cleaning business, you just don't simply uh, close dry cleaning business. There's a process that you have to go through because of that hazardous material that dry cleaners can leave behind. So was he proposing to have the doggy daycare at a dry cleaners that was closed or was the dry cleaning still going to be somewhat operational? He was proposing to close the dry cleaning business. And in fact, you're absolutely right. They, there were issues related to EPA and cleanup because of the dry cleaning chemicals. And um, the, the money that was received from one investor for that doggy daycare never went to anything related to the doggy daycare. Um, he, ha he had these issues related to the cleanup for, for the dry cleaner that were just never resolved. Okay. What was he actually offering these investors? Like if he, if he was taking money from these investors, what was his promises back to them? So the, the investor signed a, a promissory note. That was the actual security that, that gave them an interest rate up to 15%. And in addition, within the promissory note terms, they were being offered stock in these different businesses. So they were going to get uh, a stated return on the promissory note plus part of uh, dividends or revenue generated through those stock certificates. And I'm just going to take a stab in the dark and say that these promissory notes were not registered. You are correct. Okay. So that, that would be one huge red flag for an investor. So would you say that this was somewhat of a Ponzi scheme? Yes, it was. And, and Leo, our, the forensic accountant, um, traced the money. Some of the money was used to pay um, returns back to a significant portion of it went to the ex-wife for some pretty uh, extensive alimony payments. For our listeners, I'm sure many of our listeners know what a Ponzi scheme is. But could you, in just simple terms, explain how a Ponzi scheme works? Sure, a Ponzi scheme is when someone solicits an investor to invest 
and uses that money to pay back previous investors. And the reason that a Ponzi scheme is illegal is because that use of proceeds is not disclosed to the investor. So some Ponzi schemes actually do have a nugget of a legitimate business that doesn't make the Ponzi scheme legitimate because the, the, the basis of the, the fraud and the illegality is the fact that they're not disclosing to those investors that your money is going to be used to back other investors. When he was actually receiving funds from these investors, was he acting as their investment advisor or was he just soliciting funds for his, his new business for the doggy daycare or dry cleaning business? He was actually acting as the investment advisor. And in fact, when we traced the funds mm -hmm. um, through the, the accounts at Hoarder, what we saw was that he actually processed the paperwork to withdraw those from funds from legitimate investment accounts. Mm. And, and it, the money actually went from legitimate investment account directly into Hannon owned and in fact, Hannon titled accounts. Let's get into really how your office learned about Mr. Hannon, because this is a whole different, this is a great story and it involved like some kind of luck being in the right place at the right time. So how did your office learn about Mr. Hammond? Leo, did you want to take this one? Oh, sure. Um, as, as you know, uh, Ohio is kind of a, a, a small town and I'm originally from Canton, Ohio. And so I happened to be downtown one day working at the courthouse on another case. And I stopped in a coffee shop, which was kind of an upscale coffee shop, which was in the same building and on the same marquee as Mr. Hannon's investment advisory firm. I stopped in to get a cup of coffee whereby I know the owners very well. And uh, one, of the, one, the, one of the owners was a fraud auditor for a, a very reputable insurance company. And he approached me and, he, and him and I went to high school together. And he said to me, Leo, I'm gonna write this guy's name down on a business card and I think you should check him out. And I said, well, what, what's the reason? He says, well, the clients of his have been stopping in and asking about his whereabouts. And uh, we don't know where he's at. His uh, office has been closed for some time. And so that's a, that's a red flag. And uh, he, had, you know, he had knowledge of what I did and where I worked. So um, I went back to the office and uh, I, I placed a phone call to Janice. And uh, Janice and I had a conversation uh, about this gentleman. And uh, I believe she had uh, used some resources to look up um, some information related to FINRA and had found out that there was a, um, a complaint filed against him. So uh, that's how basically how the uh, investigation had started. So, so it was just really luck that you went to this coffee shop where his dry cleaning business was located right. And he was having angry customers coming up, wanting to know what happened. Where is he? His 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 business was the door was right across the the door from the coffee shop. Um, and to believe it or not, Janice had mentioned early on here that he lived above the the, the coffee shop in wow. an old hotel that had been uh, restored. It was an historic uh, historical hotel from the area. So I, I was born and raised in the town. 
And mm -hmm. I, I know that this uh, building is a, a very historical building. And uh, she said swanky, but it's an historical building that was restored and in very nice condition. So, uh, yeah, that's how the that's how it started. Um, and then uh, Janice and I, we uh, we teamed up and we opened an investigation and we started to uh, explore, uh, you know, the uh, the resources that we had. And then finally, um, we were told by the building owner um, who who had him as a uh, as a tenant that there were some files in the bottom of the building. And so we um, we got a search warrant and a subpoena. And uh, he let us in the bottom of the building, and there were many, many client files that he had not turned over, which were in a cage in the bottom of the uh, uh, building, which we took custody of. So was he actually conducting his investment advising business in the dry cleaning shop at this time? No, he still had his office, but he hadn't paid the rent and the landlord, the uh, landlord was in the process of evicting him. Was he surprised or how did he act whenever he found out that, that you were investigating? When Janice was in town and we were working the case, we had begun working the case, Janice and I, we took a ride to the dry cleaning business and we were looking at the business and we parked our car and uh, we got out and uh, I banged on the door and thought maybe if he was around, we'd like to talk to him. And sure enough, it was kind of creepy because he had come around the corner of the building and told Janice and I, well, I'm glad you're here because I, was, I, I wanted to talk to somebody and I believe I know why you're here. And we ended up talking to him and interviewing him um, basically at a, an old picnic table outside the building. Wow. And he actually had told us at the time that he had owed people a lot of money. And the number that he had threw out there at the time was about $1.3 million, which we, sooner, which we later confirmed as $1.7 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So he, he, he took about $1.7 million from about five victims. And that $1.7 million actually, believe it or not, flowed through uh, about eight different business entities, which I consider shell companies. There were 24 bank accounts that I reviewed and analyzed so it, in order to compile this $1.7 million. So uh, it, it was a pretty lengthy uh, analysis that I had to do during the investigation. With those victims, what type of victims are investors was he looking for? Did they did they share any common traits with each other? Well, yes, they were elderly victims and uh, they were over the age of 60 years old and in the state of Ohio, um, they're considered uh, a protected class as far as the re revised code is considered. But these, these victims were targeted by Mr. Hannon um, because a lot of these people had uh, property which uh, had oil and gas and mineral rights. And, and the way he had targeted those people, he had set up uh, what they call landowner tax saving workshops. And these workshops were put on in hotels 
all over the area. And when these people, in Ohio, we had a big uh, surge in oil and gas, and these people were gonna receive uh, a large settlement for the oil and gas rights. And he had targeted these people, and he put on these workshops. And in the workshops, he included an accountant and an attorney, which gave the workshop credibility. And right. so once, once these people found out that there were tax strategies that he had identified, him and his uh, accountant and attorney, he became close with these people. And some of these people were his clients, and that's how he ended up getting the money. So pretty much he had had existing relationships with most of the clients. Correct. Or he had, or he began a relationship with them when they, be, when they came into money. So did he have anybody in his inner circle that knew that this was fraud? Like, did he have any employees that worked directly up under him at the dry cleaning place or at the investment firm? Well, we, we interviewed uh, a few of the employees at the dry cleaning business, and they had suspicions that um, his business wasn't going very well because I don't believe he paid his taxes and he didn't pay his vendors. So well, I think that they became concerned. Did his victims know each other? A few of the victims were related, yes. Did they ever communicate with each other that this doesn't seem exactly right or were there ever concerns or when did they start asking questions or did they ever start really asking questions? Well, I, I don't really think they really put put the connected the dots because uh, he, he kept on telling them that, you know, that their money was going to be invested and it was working, you know, it was working to build the business. Well, and he had just he had given them information uh, as to progress reports. Um, and the progress reports were only positive progress reports, not negative pro progress reports. So they had full trust and faith in him. That is correct. Too much. Wow. And you said that he ended up taking somewhere around $1.7 million from five victims? Five victims, including husband and wives. Wow. What was his end game? Where did he see this going? I, I think he got desperate, Nick, in the sense that he began to go to the casinos. And I I believe by looking at some of the withdrawals and some of the casino records that we reviewed showed that he was spending a lot of money in the casinos, which tells me that um, he's trying to win the money back. I think he, right. he has an end, his end game is to uh, take a chance on a table and see if he can get lucky and pay these people back. So it's safe to say that he was not acting on his client's best interest. No, I think he had a fiduciary responsibility that he breached wholeheartedly. So what was he actually spending all of this money on? $1.7 million. That's a lot of money. Yes, it is. Um, well, he, uh, like I said, he had gambled, he's a heavy gambler. Uh, he paid his ex-wife uh, a large amount of money every month as a, as a spousal support agreement that he had. He also, you know, lived off the money. He, he didn't have any source of income when the uh, 
dry cleaners uh, ended up folding up. Uh, his end game was to try to get his investors to invest in a new idea. And the new idea was always something that was kind of off the wall, like Janice had mentioned, the doggy daycare. I mean, uh, it, it, it was a long shot. And I think that, you know, he had also had a, a, a business that he was trying to uh, push, with, which was called a human resources business, where whereby he would he was going to try to manage uh, the uh, human resources for various amount of companies, which he had no clients at all. Wow. His ex-wife, do you think that she knew, like if all of a sudden he was making like these big alimony payments, did she ever question like, where is he getting the money from or? Well, I, I, I don't believe that she knew until the end. Gotcha. Um, I, I believe you know, she was involved and named in a civil lawsuit whereby the uh, victims had filed a lawsuit. And I believe that the attorneys uh, became aware of where some of the money had come from. So she was named in a lawsuit. And I think that um, she became aware of that mm -hmm. um, sooner or later. She knew that, uh, you know, his businesses were not as successful as he portrayed them to be. So let's move in. So now that we have the background of kind of like what the businesses were, we know a little bit about Mr. Hannon. Um, when the investigation and trials were actually ongoing, did he cooperate during the investigations? Well, at, at some point in time, we approached him. And like Janice said, um, he was emailing us back and forth um, with the idea that we were going to help him uh, facilitate the collection and the repayment of monies back to his victims, which was not the was not the case at all. Once we started the criminal investigation, we started to uh, we shut down. Uh, but at some point in time, we did approach Mr. Cannon and ask him that ask him if he would be interested in coming into the prosecutor's office and uh, being deposed on the record, and he agreed. Uh, he came in and. Uh, on the record, he had made a lot of admissions as to what he did with the money, how he took the money under false pretenses, how many victims that you know he had uh, exploited. And uh, he also told us that his intent was to repay these people. So And do you did you actually, just from talking to him, did you actually believe that he had that intent to repay his victims? Well, when you review the, the bank records and you find out that there is no legitimate source of income inside the bank account and you know what he's spending the money on, right. you can tell that you, you can tell that he, he was selfish and that uh, he, he was somewhat of a narcissist. When, and that's, that's one of the interesting things about this case. When you see him, he would really wouldn't strike you as somebody that would you would automatically think, oh, that's a narcissist. But I guess narcissists can come in all shapes, forms, sizes. When did you start seeing the narcissistic behavior rear its head? Well, Janice and I saw the narcissist behavior when he started to email us with a with a uh, strategic plan and how he was trying to force his plan on us. That was the first indication. Second was when um, he appeared in court and uh, 
tried to take control of the courtroom, which the judge did not uh, agree with. So, uh, well, Janice, um, moving over to the actual case itself, were there any hurdles in your way going through this trial? You know, the, one of the one of the best things. This may sound odd, but one of the best things to have in a in a criminal trial is good defense counsel. And one of the toughest things to kind of deal with is when a defendant wants to represent himself. And so the first hurdle we had is that Mr. Hannon uh, told the court he wanted to represent himself. He told the court that he knew more than his attorney did and that he could do a better job of representing himself. And at one point in a public hearing, the judge held up the procedures book, which is a pretty uh, large book in Ohio, and said, so you mean to tell me that you know everything within this book? And he said, yes, at first, and then he and then he kind of backtracked on that. So I think that his narcissism was um, was kind of what did him in. We did have actually two trials. So the first trial proceeded with him representing himself. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting when you have Wadir in jury trials because the attorney gets to speak directly to the, the jurors and ask them questions. And at the very beginning of the trial during Wadir, the first thing that Hannon did is he stood up and he said, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of violating a rule, but it wasn't a crime. And that's how he started out his Wadir. It was, it was a little bit surreal. Um, so we, we had Wadir, we sat the jury. Uh, there are lots of objections uh, because he wanted to get into things that he could not. And the first witness that the prosecutor called was um, Hannon's ex-girlfriend's. And this was the person that he said was the love of his life, um, was still in love with her, uh, prosecuted her, brought her as the first witness. We found out during trial prep that she had actually filed a whistleblower complaint with the SEC. Wow. Yes, against Hannon. Um, and part of it was because she was concerned about the source of the monies that he was using when he would go out gambling, he seemed to be a big spender. He talked about investors. And so the SEC whistleblower complaint talked about the fact that he might be running some type of Ponzi scheme. Wow. And yeah, and and so she testified when Hannon stood up to cross-examine her, he was just deflated. He was deflated and he couldn't cross-examine her. And at that point he told the judge that he didn't want to go through with it, that he wanted to plead guilty. Wow. So did the did his girlfriend, are you aware, did she ever receive like any whistleblower reward from the SEC or do you know? Not that I know of. I don't know. But I, what I do know is that we didn't know her identity. And I don't think the SEC knew her identity because gotcha. it was filed anonymously. Gotcha. So how did the that trial come to an end so kim mr hannon didn't want to move forward uh, he actually said that he wanted to plead guilty mm -hmm. um he but he told the judge he would only plead guilty if she would sentence him to life in prison 
that's extreme. Right. So he even at that point wanted to control the outcome. I, you know, his narcissism was was really excessive. So the judge said, we can't sentence you to life in prison. That's not part of the sentencing guidelines for, for these crimes. And you're and you're not going to control basically what my sentence is when you plead guilty. There was some back and forth in open court regarding that. And ultimately, um, Hannon said that he he wanted to be represented by counsel instead of a plea. And his counsel, which was a public defender, said, I'm not ready to move forward today. And so they declared a mistrial for the first trial. So he was a smart man and he told everybody that he was pretty much smarter than everybody else. Do you think that he was calculated enough to cause this mistrial on purpose? Or do you think it was just happenstance that it happened that way? That is a great question. I don't think that he was smart enough to understand what the ramifications were mm -hmm. of saying he was going to plea and then saying that he wanted counsel. Mm -hmm. But I do think that he was calculated in most everything that he did. So this was just great coincidence that he pretty much is getting himself a new trial because the new attorney representing is not going to have enough time to get his case together. Could be. Yeah. All right. So the next case, was there a lot of time in between the mistrial and the new trial? No, I think it was about a month or two just okay. in, until we could get on the docket for that courtroom. Uh, did the girlfriend, did she come and testify at this trial? She did. And how put off was he about that? I, you know, he, he didn't have to face her. He didn't get the opportunity to talk to her and ask her questions. And I, and I, I think he sat, he was fairly quiet at counsel's table. And so I, I, I didn't see him get incredibly agitated when she took the stand. He was pretty subdued during the trial. Of course, he wasn't the one speaking his, his attorney was throughout the trial. So he never testified on his behalf. He did not. And do you think that was a smart move on his part? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And uh, here is another question. Whenever I was going back and just kind of reviewing the case, I was watching some of the videos of the trial. I noticed that he was wearing um, a pretty large set of headphones. What were those? Were those hearing devices or do you recall what those were? Yes, they were hearing devices connected directly into the microphone. Okay. For the judge and the witnesses, he he said that he had uh, some hearing loss. The interesting thing that we noticed during the trial, because the trial was interrupted at several points because he said he couldn't hear, mm -hmm. and it delayed that second trial. And what we noticed during the trial was, uh, for a significant portion of time, those earphones were actually down around his neck and not actually on his ears. So during this trial, um, what was he actually convicted of? So he was convicted on all counts that were presented to the jury. He was convicted of misrepresentations and the sale of securities. He was mm -hmm. convicted of securities fraud for the material omissions about how the money was gonna be used and about how the business wasn't profitable 
-hmm. He was convicted of deceptive, manipulative, fraudulent conduct as an investment advisor, which is a separate felony level crime in Ohio. And he was convicted of theft and theft from the elderly. And it was over 50 counts. Correct. And his attorney, what was his attorney's argument for him on why he wasn't, you know, guilty of these? His argument was basically that Kim had every intent to manage these businesses, that he was just a, a bad businessman and that it, that's not a crime. So at sentencing, sentencing was probably one of the more interesting parts of this whole soap opera, I would guess. Can you tell us a little bit about what he said to his victims as he was speaking to them directly for the first time? Yes, and, and in Ohio, the victims have the right to appear at sentencing and provide a statement or just be present. They don't have to speak. So there was um, one of the largest investors who was elderly was sitting in the back of the courtroom. And I will note that that during his sales pitches with, with many of these investors, he did use faith as a, a point of solicitation. He, he called himself a man of God, said that he was a faithful man and he would pray with some of his investors when they would invest with him. So during the, the, the sentencing, Hannon had the chance to speak. And at one point I was sitting in the back of the courtroom with the next to the victim, Kim Hannon turns around, speaks directly to his elderly victim and says, I want you to know that God is in this. Wow. That the money is coming. That's so all the way to the end, pretty much proclaiming his innocence. Yes. And I also noticed whenever I was going back and um, listening to some of the videos is his argument. And he even said this during um, his sentencing is that he felt that it wasn't fair because nobody got to hear his side of the story. And that was by, by choice because he didn't testify on his behalf. So, but there really probably wouldn't have been another story that would have been able to been, been told in your opinion, right? It's an interesting argument that he made because the last piece of evidence or one of the last pieces of evidence that was introduced at trial was that interview under oath where Leo and I interviewed Kim Hannon in the prosecutor's office. Mm -hmm. And it was probably at least an hour, maybe longer, where we asked him his side of the story. It was tape recorded. There was a transcript and where he made all of those admissions and talked about the businesses. And that was one of the last pieces of evidence that was introduced in trial. And that was really him telling to Leo and I what his side of the story was. So it was an interesting argument. You're right, because not only did his story get in through the interview that we had with him, but he had every right to testify on his behalf and right. decided not to. Well, what was he ultimately sentenced to? He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And he was ordered to pay restitution for the full amount, a little bit less than $1.7 million to the investors. Were you aware, was any money able to be recovered from what he had, like any banking accounts or anything like that? Or was it just pretty much all gone? It was all gone as far as we know. Wow. Wow. And in fact, one of the emails that uh, we mentioned early on 
Nick, where he was trying to get us to facilitate his repayment plan, he, 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 he quotes in his email, I'm flat broke. And uh, that was, you know, that was one of the things that he told us, which means that there was no money there. That's, that's a lot of money to run through in that short of time. A lot of money. Well, um, Janice, what did you think about the judge's remarks that she made directly to him during sentencing? She called him a narcissist. Um, but on the flip side of that, she even said where she thinks that he went in with good intentions, but he doesn't look at money the way that a typical person would look at money. Yeah, I do think that she showed a little bit of compassion in how she classified what he did. Um, she did she did in very strong terms and at the very beginning of the sentencing say that that she believes he got into this because he's a narcissist, mm -hmm. has narcissistic tendencies. And you know, from a security standpoint, intent doesn't really matter, right? The, you know, you have to disclose. So if you're if you're taking on investor monies, you have to disclose all material information and you have to disclose it accurately and honestly. And so um, that is the basis of securities regulation in Ohio is disclosure. And so, you know, ultimately, she, you know, I do think that she was showing some compassion and classifying it, that he had good intentions. I don't know that he did, um, but she did. She really did go after him for, for being a narcissist. Well, you know, that pretty much wraps up the trial, the investigation. The next part of the interview is coming to an end. But the main thing that we want to get across to the listeners that's listening today is how could this have been stopped? How could you have helped your loved ones if you were if one of your loved ones was one of these victims? Is there anything that they could have possibly done to stop this? Any red flags that you could have seen? So what were some of the red flags that should have been noticed? One of the red flags, you know, we always say, always check broker check on FINRA to see whether the person you're dealing with is licensed. Unfortunately, in this particular instance, he was, but there were, there were um, several other red flags. Uh, one is if your investment advisor is soliciting you to invest in his or her own business, that should be a red flag. You know, any type of offering needs to be registered for sale in Ohio unless it qualifies for an exemption. And anytime you're being sold on an investment, I think the two questions you're going to ask are, is the person licensed? Mm -hmm. And is this product registered? And both of those questions can be answered um, by contacting the division in whatever state you're in uh, or in Ohio and looking online at SEC Edgar. So these offerings were not registered. They were being offered by an investment advisor. One other red flag is where are you getting your statements? Are you getting state valuation statements quarterly like you would in, in what I would call a legitimate investment? Or are you getting something yearly that tells you what the value of those investments are? And then who is providing you those statements? Is it, is it your, the same gentleman who sold the investment to you or is it some third party company? When you know what to look for, um, those should be red flags. But unfortunately, in this case, these people trusted him. He was their investment advisor. That's what you should be able to do, right? Right. Did he, uh, this is one thing that I didn't ask, but did he put any pressure on the investors to act quickly or this might not be here? Did he put any like high pressure sales tactics 
to get the money quickly? There was when he was close to the end of, of this scheme, when, when he was really going down uh, the, the tubes there. I do recall that there was evidence of one transaction that was taking longer to process and him working with the firm to try to expedite getting that, those funds into his account. I don't know that there were um, pressure tactics to, to get them to invest right away. He was just mainly just working on the common bond that he had with them and just playing up the fact that they trusted him 100%. Yes. And in fact, one of the investors brought a shoebox of cash uh, to the dry cleaners for one of his investments. Didn't ask for a receipt. Didn't get any type of paperwork when he, when he <laughs> provided him this cash as an investment. Well, Ms. Hitzman and Mr. Fernandez, is there any other details that we have left out that you would like to talk about that maybe we missed during this podcast that the viewers or listeners would like to like to know about Mr. Hannon? Well, Nick, I, I have one thing to add uh, okay. maybe to the red flags list. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I noticed that during the investigation was the promissory notes had a unreasonable uh, amount of interest that uh, that he was offering. It, it, it was too good to be true. And any anytime you see you know uh, a document of that nature where somebody's willing to pay you uh, an absorbent amount of interest when the market's only bearing a certain amount of interest, uh, that's that's a red flag in the financial world. I think that was one of the things that we noticed that the interest rate uh, was very enticing for these people because they were not getting that return on their investment inside their broker account. And I think that was one of the selling points that uh, made the investment uh, appealing to them. Okay. So the red flags of Mr. Hannon, if your investment advisor tries to get you to invest your money in a side project through him, that's not registered red flag. Number one, red flag. Number two is if, the return on your investment is too good to be true. So there were definitely red flags in this case. But again, if it's your financial advisor that you trust, sometimes there's red flags. Maybe doesn't appear to be so red because you trust the, um, your financial advisor so much. So, so with that, the best way to check out somebody is that you can go to NASA's website and you can actually, if you're not sure, who your securities commission is in your jurisdiction. All you really have to do is go to NASA, that is N-A-S-A-A.org, click contact us and then click contact NASA member and then choose your jurisdiction regulator by just clicking on your state or providence on the map. Well, with that, thank you both for joining me today and for the work that you do to protect the investors. I'd also like to give a big thank you to our producer, Chris Cartelli, and he is with the Securities and Business Investment Division of the Connecticut Department of Banking. That is it from today. And from Montgomery, Alabama, I'm your host, Nick Bondaroo. If you have any questions about today's episode or would like more information about the topics discussed, you can email us at realliferegulators at gmail.com. And if you'd like to hear future episodes, please hit the subscribe button. The best way to check out somebody is that you can go to NASA's website and you can actually, if you're not sure 
who your securities commission is in your jurisdiction. All you really have to do is go to NASA, that is N-A-S-A-A dot org, click contact us, and then click contact NASA member, and then choose your jurisdiction regulator by just clicking on your state or providence on the map. 